Now this morning we're approaching celebrating the Lord's table together. A time of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross via the memorial that he instituted the night before he died. Oftentimes before we do this we're exhorted to examine ourselves. Exhorted to look at our lives and inspect that prior to communion so that we don't take it in an unworthy manner. That's biblical. Paul says to do so in 1 Corinthians 11. But why examine ourselves? I think maybe sometimes we're, we, we are told to do that and know to do that, but don't necessarily understand the full weight of why. Many, many people would just say, look, just, just be happy in, uh, in the forgiveness of Christ. You know, it's, it's freedom. That's great. Let's, let's, just, let's just be happy, and we should be happy. There's great freedom. There's great forgiveness in Christ. But we examine ourselves at times like this particularly because there's an expectation that accompanies salvation. And I think that that expectation is often kind of downplayed or even under understood, as it were. But you see, if you've accepted the benefits, the, the forgiveness and the security from condemnation that comes from faith in Christ, if you've accepted those benefits of Christ's work through faith and repentance, then you've also been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you've been transferred from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Christ. And you've been transferred from being a citizen of this world to being a citizen of Christ's kingdom. A kingdom where Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is King. And communion is a time of remembering the king's first coming, Christmas, his advent, his incarnation, and his fantastic work during that first advent, his life, his perfectly righteous life, his, his work of, of atonement on the cross, of dying and bearing the, the wrath of God for the sake of the sins of those whom he would forgive and being raised from the dead. But it's also a time of remembering another coming, another advent. And we had the first Noel. There will be a last Noel as well. It's Christ's impending return. The king cometh. We have to remember that. And communion is one of the ways that we do that. That's why Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When the king comes back, what will his servants be doing? Christ makes it clear that he expects his servants to be obediently living and working on his behalf. And so in between those advents, communion helps us to remember to examine ourselves as we await the return of the king. And our passage this morning gives two areas for us to consider as we remember and anticipate our Savior. Turn over to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Follow along as I read this morning. Again, Titus 2, 11 to 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So why check our hearts before communion? Why examine our lives before communion? Because the grace of God in salvation comes with an invitation and instructions that we need to consider this morning and consider our lives in light of these things. So first, look together at the, the invitation to salvation. In verse 11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, you're well trained by Pastor Rick. So you know, because of that highly particular training, that verse 11 comes after verse 10 and 9 and 8 and before that. So in the context of chapter 2, what's happened is that Paul has just finished giving a bunch of instructions on practical living. He says, older men, you're to live in this way. Older women, you're to live in this sort of a way and instruct the younger women to live in this sort of a way. And younger men, you are to be this kind of a young man. Titus, you be this way. And slaves, I need you, I want you to, you are instructed to live in this sort of a way, specifically regarding life with your master. And then he says, for. So we know that what comes explains what happened. So Paul says here, here is why you are instructed to live so particularly. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Here is the invitation to salvation. And we need to consider it carefully before communion this morning. Consider, as we just sang multiple times about the grace of God, what is grace? The Sunday school answer is it's unmerited favor. And that's true. But there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a kind of a, another level of weight to it that I think is helpful for us to understand. So grace as undeserved kindness, grace as benevolent gifts and favor comes from one of high power and authority to one of no or low power and authority. This is a term that sets the giver and the recipient up at two different ends of the spectrum. Okay? This term, the idea of grace being given, sets God up here and us down here. See, up here, God is powerful. God is holy. God is capable. God is righteous. And down here, man is lowly. Man is sinful. Man is incapable. And man is unrighteous. And so grace then is, is kindness. Not from here to here on a horizontal plane of you know, peers giving each other kindness. But on a very vertical level of kindness and favor coming from one who can bestow to one who is not worthy of being given those things. And is not capable of drawing those things to himself or, or obtaining those things on their own. Grace is kindness from up here to down here. And this is God's kindness and benevolent treatment from on high, from his exalted position to us in our undeserving and our, in our, our sinful and 
a wretched place. And that's not very good for our self-esteem, but that's good because that's the truth. That's who we are and that's where we're at. But this grace, this favorable opinion, this, this benevolent action has appeared. Literally has been made manifest. It's, it's the Greek word that we get our word epiphany from. It appears. This is the advent, the first advent of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, and it's appeared in Jesus Christ. Think of the, the Gospel of John and how he refers to Jesus. He refers to him as the one in whom we see God's glory, the one who is full of grace and truth. And I think you need to make sure and adjust that understanding of grace as you consider who Christ was, because a lot of the times we have a tendency to think of grace as, well, that's, that this, this person is such a gracious person. Their, their words are kind. They have a sweet demeanor. We often use gracious that way. But in this kind of a context, grace is what we just discussed. That benevolent favor from one on high to one low who is undeserving. And that grace from God comes to us in Christ. That grace was made manifest because God himself, the Son of God, took on flesh. Jesus embodies, makes manifest perfectly communicates God's grace to us. Jesus himself is God's kindness to us. The kindness, the benevolence, the favor from on high appeared down low in the person of Christ. And it is he who we come to celebrate this morning, who we come to remember this morning along with the grace and favor that he embodies and manifested through his life and work. And it's a grace then, it's a favor, it's an undeserved kindness that brings salvation to all men. This invitation to salvation is an open invitation. All men are invited to come and receive it. We've been in Romans long enough to know that not all men do come and receive it. And that they then bear the just penalty for that rejection of the invitation on their own. But the invitation is open. The invitation is there to all. As John 1 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So the invitation stands. It's open to all. Jesus, the grace of God, appeared. Jesus, God's son himself, came down to earth as a man and said, Look at me. Look at me. I manifest God's favorable kindness to you all. And in this kindness is an open invitation for you to come and participate. That's why he said, eat of my body and drink of my blood. And that's that partake of me and the grace that I am. Any and all who believe will be saved. And that's important to keep in mind. Because none of us deserve it. The position from which it comes and those to whom it, uh, it descends is important to keep in mind because some of you might think that you're too sinful. Some of you might think that you're in too bad of a spot or your history has been too, too checkered for this. But we are all in the same boat, all condemned, all sinful before a holy God, all Deserving of condemnation and eternal punishment because of those sins. 
all of us. And yet Jesus Christ came as the grace of God manifested and said, all of you are invited to come and to receive the salvation that I offer you as the Son of God. No, you're not too sinful to repent and receive the invitation. No, your history is not too spotty to avail yourself of God's grace. No, your situation isn't too ugly for God to look at you and extend that offer to you. He extends the grace that brings salvation to all men, for we are all wretched and undeserving sinners under equal condemnation before a holy and righteous God. After all, if we deserved it, or were even a little bit more deserving than so-and-so over here, then it wouldn't be grace. So the first consideration before communion is this. Consider this open invitation to salvation. Have you accepted it? Have you repented of your sins, acknowledged your offense to God and your inability to do anything to rectify the situation? Have you cast yourself upon His grace as given to us through Jesus Christ? If you haven't, then communion is not for you. The bread and the cup that we'll partake of later, they represent the body of Jesus Christ, broken. The blood of Jesus Christ, spilled for those who believe, for those who have received, those who have repented and accepted that invitation. So carefully consider this invitation, knowing that it's offered to you. It is offered to you right now, through Jesus Christ, his life and his work, his death, his resurrection. And on the other hand, if you have genuinely repented and responded to that invitation, then partake. But until you accept that invitation with sincerity and truth, then don't participate in what is an act of worship. So having looked at the first consideration there, the invitation to salvation, let's read on and consider the instructions of salvation. Verse 12 says, we'll really have to read verse 11 too, again. For the grace of God has appeared. There's the subject, the grace of God. It has brought salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, after accepting the invitation to salvation, we must recognize that, that salvation comes with instructions. It's not just receive and then go do as you want. It's receive and hear your instructions. This idea of instructing us comes from the word paiduo. Paiduo, which has a little ring of familiarity to any of you who have followed along with the Star Wars, you know, paid, pad, padawan, young padawan, you have done well, you have learned. I don't think George Lucas intended that connection necessarily. I actually did some research and I couldn't find out where he came up with that term. But the idea there is, is accurate, the idea of a learner. The idea that grace, Jesus, steps in as our master in salvation, steps in as our master, our teacher, 
our educator. And he gives us instructions for our shaping, for our growth, for our, our learning, giving us an example to, to emulate and directions to obey. Dr. MacArthur puts it well. He says, Revealed and personified in Christ, God's sovereign saving grace not only is a deliverer, but is also a teacher, a guide, a counselor. When we were saved, we immediately came under the tutelage of God through His Holy Spirit and through His Word. See, grace, salvation comes with an open invitation. But with that invitation are instructions. And we have to consider these instructions before we move to communion. These instructions are both negative and positive. The negative comes first and, and, and in sort of a subordinate way sets up the main instruction and teaching. So before getting to that positive instruction, the grace of God here instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. These are the prohibitions of salvation. The grace of God has come to offer salvation to all men. And to those who receive that, there's an instruction set. And that includes some prohibitions. And then we'll see some prescriptions. But salvation prohibits us from saying yes to God and yes to the worldly flesh. God's grace prohibits us from saying yes to ungodliness and yes to godliness as your ruling pattern of life. Jesus instructs us to say no to ungodliness, to deny it, to make the willful choice to willingly refuse to elevate other things into that hallowed position of reverence that God deserves, to say no to ungodliness, to say no to saying, I don't think God is who he says he is, and I don't think he has the capacity to influence what he says he does, and I don't think that the truth that he says is really the truth, so I'm going to replace all those with my set or the world sets or any of those things. That's ungodliness, a lack of reverence and awe for who God is and what he says. And Jesus says, you have to say no to that. You have to deny that. In faith, believing godliness is more desirable for us and more pleasing to our Heavenly Father, we say no to the ways of life that deny God, those mindsets and worldviews that contradict who God is and what He says. Furthermore, grace instructs us to deny and to say no to worldly desires. So it's the epithumia, it's a strong desire. And it's not the strong desire itself that is wrong. We are people of passions. We are people of strong desires. But it's where those strong desires are aimed. And grace, the grace that brings salvation to all men, instructs us to deny worldly desires, to deny the aiming of those strong passions at, 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 at things under the purview of the world and under the, the, the domain and the rule of Satan, the flesh, the sinful tendencies that run contrary to God's expressed will for life. This is a one-time occurrence at salvation, and it's an ongoing process. It's one time in the sense that in the moment of salvation, we come to this providential fork in the road where, as we sang earlier, we're, we're chained in a dungeon that's dark and 
God breaks in with this light of, of his illumination. He says, you see the truth of who I am and who you are. And he instills faith in us. And in that moment of instilling faith within us, the Spirit instructs us saying, that ungodliness and that worldly desires that you were living for before, you say no to those. And you say yes to godliness. You say yes to Christ Jesus. And we do, and we're saved. But it also continues on each moment of our life in the midst of pursuing what we'll see are the positive instructions. But Paul's main point here is that the act of denial came first. It's almost as if he says, uh, instructing us that having denied ungodliness and worldly desires, we now are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So after saying no, we are instructed in what we are to say yes to. And these are the prescriptions of salvation. The saving grace of God manifested and having appeared in the person of Jesus instructs us to say Yes, to sensible living, to righteous living, to godly living. Having denied those things, we now say yes to these things. Sensible living, if you look back through chapter 2 and even in the the passage on elders in chapter 1, it's been kind of a theme throughout. The older men are to be sensible. The older women, having developed into sensibility, are to teach the younger women to be sensible. Um... (laughs) The poor young men only get one instruction because that's probably all that they can handle. And that one instruction is, be sensible. So what is sensibility? It's the natural instruction that salvation brings. It's it's living with self-control. Living with a sober understanding of the balance of life. A sense of sobriety that, that, that... discerns and then acts appropriately and accordingly to the right priority of life, the right balance in life. Pastor Rick's sermon series on Ecclesiastes has been very helpful for me in discerning what sensible living looks like. Because sensible living is not, you know, uh, uh, boo-hoo, life is not, I'm not allowed to have fun, I'm not allowed to, you know, not allowed to enjoy myself or any of these things. I have to just be serious and sober-minded and, and, and then it's not that. But neither is it, hey, freedom, do whatever I want. It's, it's, it's a balance. It's, an, it's a, a self-control and a discernment and an understanding of being able to say, I, I recognize and I see what the, what the right priorities are. It's that sensibility of looking at a situation and going, no, that doesn't fit. That's not the right way to respond to what is before me. So I'm going to choose to respond in a sensible way. And deals with the self. Righteous living is the pursuit of obedience in all things. See, contrary to what some might say, forgiveness in Christ is not a license to live loosely. Forgiveness should not lead to licentiousness. It doesn't break the chain to sin and then just say, go and reattach yourself. Forgiveness breaks the chain to sin and then attaches what is, what is the most comfortable form of, of bondage that you can have, and yet it is a form of bondage. We are then attached to Christ for righteousness' sake. That's what Paul says. He says, your slaves are the one to whom you obey. You were slaves to sin because you obeyed sin, but now you're slaves to Christ because you're obeying Christ. 
So live righteously. Salvation results in a pursuit of righteous living. Thinking almost on a, on a horizontal plane, a pattern of obedience in our life now because of love for the one who bestowed such a grace upon you. And then thirdly, the godly living. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. It's a devotional idea. Pastor Rick preached a few weeks back on the idea of, of one of our greatest concerns as, as a leadership team is that you might stray from pure and simple devotion unto Christ. That's godly living. Pure and simple devotion to Christ. Godly living is, is more than just morality. Because morality is self-oriented. Godly living affects morality, but for a whole different reason. Godly living affects morality with an entirely different aim and goal. That is the simple and pure devotion to Christ. This constant awareness of the person of Christ and keeping Him in the forefront of our minds and our lives so that as we pursue Him, our morality is affected. And that's what the grace of God instructs us to do. The invitation is open, but if you've accepted that invitation, then there are instructions. And you must consider these things before you come to communion. Have you denied those things, and are you living in such a way? And we have to notice the time parameter as well. It says to, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In the present age. Because folks... Once we die, it's a moot point. There is no second chance. This present age, our life now is all we have to make a choice regarding these things, to accept this invitation and to live according to the instructions. Someone who has chosen to refuse the invitation and to reject the instructions of salvation, someone who refuses those things after they die, they are justly condemned to an eternity of hell. Punishment for their sins because they have grievously offended a holy God who must, by his very nature and character, give justice and punishment for those sins. And there is no second chance. And it's very easy to think, well, maybe then, maybe in 10 years, the younger you are, the more time that you think you have to maybe put these things off or, or deal with it. But it could, your time of death could come as you sit there. As you walk out to your car, I mean, frankly, as a parent of, of young children, that's what I'm, I'm always spooked about going into the parking lot, right? That's, that's the, the given nature of being a protective parent is you recognize that anything could happen at any moment. Watch out for those cars, kids. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's, a real, that's a real understanding that you don't know what's going to happen. But apply that to yourself. You don't know what's going to happen. And once we die, the point is moot. 
Once we die, the opportunity is done for that salvation to be accepted, for that invitation to be received. And those instructions to be followed. And on the other side, as believers, once we die, it's a moot point as well. The instructions then become moot. The instructions are there to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age because the present age is corrupt. And we are struggling with corrupt flesh. And so we have to heed those instructions. But when we die... That's not going to be there. We won't feel the pull of sin. We won't feel the pull of, of, of temptation to live for self, temptation to live for others, temptation to live for sin. We won't have to wrestle with the, the plain fact of the matter that in the moment we say, God tells me to do this, but my flesh wants to do this, and to fight it and to say no and to say yes, we, we, that's, that's done. And so we have this life to fight. We have this life to wrestle with that. And then we won't have to. Which I say hallelujah to that. I'm ready for that. But folks, this present age, this is it. This is when the invitation is open. And this is when the instructions are applicable. Once your life is done, once Christ comes back, it's done. Once he renders final judgment, judgment is rendered. This present age is our, 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 our one chance to willingly bow the knee before the one before whom all knees will bow. And yet now is the chance to bow it willingly and to receive that salvation and to heed those instructions. Because Jesus, the King of all ages, is coming back. And he will render judgment on the earth. You remember how Paul mentioned Christ's second advent as part of the communion celebration? It's because we're forgetful. And we forget that he's coming back in the midst of our daily living. But God's saving grace instructs us here finally to live with an awareness of his return. While living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, we are to be looking, in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope, for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This is a solid hope. This is not a, this is not a cloudy, amorphous thing that uh, we, we, we're, we're kind of just guessing that it's there. This is something that is going to happen. And our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the person of Christ and in his return. Our hope is not in our own deeds. We have no hope in our own deeds. Our hope is not in a religious system. Our hope is not in each other. Our hope is not in some good teaching from a fabled character of the past. Our hope is in the very real, very coming back person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the fact that He will come back with a blast of glory. Glory as only God 
can present. See, there's the second advent. It's the same word. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing, the epiphany, the unveiling, the manifestation of God's glory. This is going to happen, and we're to look forward to that, and we're to anchor ourselves and our lives in its coming occurrence and all the ramifications of what that means. So as we do so, we heed the instructions of salvation. We live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Why? Because we know Jesus Christ is coming back. And as his servants, as his slaves, as his people, we are to live working for him. Why? Because that, that folks, that is why Jesus came. That's the goal of his saving work. Look at verse 14. Jesus Christ, the one who's coming back, the one who will render judgment, is the one who gave himself for us on our behalf to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's analogies of, there's the the understanding that the people of God is like, it's his bride. The people of God is the bride of Christ, and he wants his bride to be spotless. And he's working to obtain that. And he has obtained it in practical standing. And he is working to obtain it and desires it in our practical daily living. But often we go about our lives as if we think that Christ died so we could live for ourselves with some sort of nice eternal fire insurance policy. Great, I got my get-out-of-jail-free card, so now I'm just going to go put that in my pocket and do whatever I want and pull it out at the last minute and say, well, see, I got got my policy. Beloved, Christ hung on the cross. Christ sacrificed himself. He bore the eternal wrath of God in all its weight against the full scope of our sins To redeem us from lawless deeds. Not free us to pursue them. To purify us. Not to remain in a a soiled state. To be his people. Not people living for self. To be zealous for good deeds. Not people who grumble and complain whenever we think, oh, God really wants me to do this for him, and I'm not comfortable with that, and I don't really want to do it, but I guess I'll do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. Zealous. Christ gave himself for that reason, for those reasons. Now you say, what does this have to do What does that have to do with communion? Well, we have to consider the instructions of salvation and check our hearts and lives in light of that. Does your life show obedience to those instructions? That's why Christ died for you. Have you denied and are you denying ungodliness and worldly desires? Yes, you can fail. Yes, you will fail. But is that denial there? Or do you 
kind of hold hands with, with ungodliness while you're, while you're reaching out for God and godliness. And kind of say, I want both. You shouldn't be holding hands with it. You should be smacking the hand away. Say, no. In addition to denial, do you live according to God's instructions? Is your life characterized, not perfect, but characterized by sensibility, righteousness, and godliness in a manner of eager expectation of the return of the king? See, that's what Christ bought us for. So living accordingly brings him the glory he deserves. And not living accordingly denies the purpose for which he bought us. You have not been purchased by the blood of Christ to sit on your duff and enjoy the, the comfort of fire insurance. You've been bought by the blood of Christ to grow, to be zealous, to be godly, to be his people for his purposes. What hypocrisy it would be to come and celebrate the act with which Christ redeemed us when we have denied the invitation and are disregarding the instructions. So take a moment and consider your life. Examine your heart. If you've never repented of your sins and accepted that salvation, then do it now. Do it now. If you're disregarding that invitation... If you're, if you're failing to heed those instructions, then repent of those things now, before communion. We're going to take a few minutes, and I want you to do that now. I want you to bow your heads, and I want you to talk to God. If you don't know God, if you have not repented, then now's your chance to bow your head and talk to God and confess your sins and bow the knee to Him as your Lord and Savior and say, Jesus Christ, I live for you now because you've bought me. And if you have done that, then bow your head and talk to him about those instructions. Examine yourself in light of these things.